Okay. What's up, my good, good nerds? Hello, everyone. How do you do? Uh, I hope that you were able to stick with us for that momentary lapse in internet connectivity. Everybody, I hope you're having a fine afternoon, evening. Some of you, it might even be morning. Uh, I don't know where you're at in your day. Right now, where I'm at in my day is chaos. I hope your day is going a little bit better. Now, uh, if we do crash out again, uh, especially during the chapter, I'm probably just going to call it for the day because I was just telling Discord, like, the things that a, a crash like that does to my stream energy, I don't really know why. It's just like, you know, my body's like ready for a stream. It's more my mind than anything else. But my mind is ready for a stream, and then the moment that it starts to go down, I'm like, <sighs> not only do I have to postpone that stream energy, but I also... You know, my energy is being drawn off by, by you know, trying to deal with tech issues. And then, you know, I, I still have, like, holdover. Um, you know, we're not talking we're not talking actual trauma. But, you know, I still have that holdover feeling from back in the day of, like, yeah, when, when the internet goes down once, it typically means that the next 45 minutes of my life are going to be dealing with constant ups and downs. I'm going to have to do a bunch of, like, you know, worry about all the editing later. It's going to be terrible. So, you know what? I just... I have this. Uh, I have this sense. I have my the my human pattern seeking uh, sensibilities indicate to me, hey, my internet has just gone down. So you're going to be dealing with that again and again and again for the next hour or two. So, not excited about that. That's what it does to my energy. <sighs> I gotta get hyped back up. I don't really do like a hype up uh, pre-stream. It's just like my body is like ready for it. It just gets ready for it on its own. But now I feel like I gotta like. <sighs> Energy, 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 pace, 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 energy, 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 pace, pace, pace. That's an old, uh, that's an old, um, improv crew warm-up. Those of you might remember this. I, any, lots of performers, it's sort of one that is a fairly common one. Uh, you know, it's, you, you, it's a little bit like the slow clap, right? You speed up to, to a normal clap. What am I doing? What am I doing? This isn't good stream. Gang, today we're here to read... <laughs> we're here to read uh, three chapters, uh, as we will be for the remainder of this book. I, I would be so excited to find that, uh, you know, books two and three follow this similar pattern where I can just divide the book up into, like, just perfect little bites. Because this book, it divides itself perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. Three streams per section three chapters per stream uh and then three sections to the book mm, so nice sending you a zap of positive energy says Luis. well Luis, i thank you for that let me let me make sure i'm in the right channel over on discord once again indeed <laughs> uh oh Luis says shrek was 2001 oh man literally decades i've been messing with shrek was i really eight years old when i started Goofing around with that movie? I must have been. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Luis just says, Love Shrek! Luis is a huge Shrek fan. Hell yeah! Oh, it's a Thursday. I gotta be careful about my language. Okay, y'all. Are you ready to do some reading? Uh, <laughs> Heart Hook says, I hope we can get through all the chapters. I think we should be able to. I think we should be alright. Um, hopefully. You know, like I said, rarely is this a 10-minute issue, but I guess it was tonight, so dally-ho. Uh, today, we're delving into part two. 
We have, we've spent three streams in part one, the tributes, and now we're delving into part two, the games. And uh, to those of you who are familiar with this series, I think you probably know what that means. Uh, once again, we got to talk a bit of review, but without the chapter titles, because these chapters have no titles, uh, it is a little difficult to remember what exactly happens. I don't have that little hint of, of uh, what goes on during the chapter. Um, chapter seven eight and nine, uh, getting prepared for the games. There are basically two big factors within this. There's getting ready for the games themselves, and then there's getting ready for all of the ancillary nonsense of the games, all the popularity contests, making an impression so that you can get good sponsors once you're actually inside the stadium arena, whatever you call it. Um, it's a dangerous time for a lot of these tributes because the strong ones aren't necessarily going to make a good impression. The ones who can make a good impression aren't necessarily the really strong, combative ones. Uh, it's wild out there, gang. These two parts of the pregame setup are... Uh, the, the training sort of happens over the course of just three days, you know? Uh, PETA and Katniss... They've been instructed by Haymitch not to direct their attention toward the stuff that they're actually good at, right? You're not going to improve any any lifelong skills over three days anyways, and you don't want to play your hand. You don't want to show the other tributes what you're great at. Uh, so Haymitch instead says, go towards stuff that uh, you don't know yet. Try to learn a new skill or two. So they, they go in for not tying. They go in for uh, identifying some of the poisonous plants. Uh, it turns out PETA is actually really good at camouflage, turns out, uh, and not bad with the hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, obviously, Katniss, fantastic with uh, edible plants, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, they notice that they've got sort of a shadow. Rue, one of the district, oh shoot, is it district 10, 9? Uh, basically, the youngest tribute of the year kind of reminds... Um, Katniss of her sister Prim. Uh, this girl's kind of following them around, but uh, this is just one part of it, right? And then they, they, of course, after this training, they go on and sort of do like a little private session with the game makers. Uh, these are the ones who are going to give them their private score, and uh, they are going to... The, the, the score will be important because higher scores mean a better chance of getting sponsorships. Um, uh, during this time, Katniss really makes an impression by shooting an arrow sort of roughly at the game makers um, and uh, in spite of this earns herself the top score uh, 11 out of 12 that the highest score of any of the tributes of the year um, so making a good impression on the the training side but then there's the then there's the appearance side the 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 side of making making a, uh, an impression the popularity contest of it all um, the most important event is the interviews that will happen immediately prior to the game. It's sort of the last big thing that happens for the tributes before they go into the arena. And during this time, this is, of course, what Haymitch is most worried about for her. And not only that, but PETA actually requests to be trained for this separately. This whole time, they've been trying to maintain this facade that they are, you know, great friends, possibly even sort of like, uh, you know, just like, like allies. Um... But Peter has to be trained separately for the, the, the interviews. And, you know, Hamish sort of does what he can. Uh, Effie does what she can for, for, <laughs> for Katniss. But Katniss is just a little hard to train in this respect. And rightfully so. This is not a life that she has, you know, spent her time surviving in. 
They get to the interviews, and of course, Cinna has uh, made Katniss look stunning. That helps a lot, and Cinna also gives a little extra bit of advice, which is that, you know, pretend like you're talking to a friend, or at least me, someone that hopefully you can consider kind of a friend. Um, and this works for Katniss. She, she makes an okay impression for herself. Um, and then the very last interview of the night, Peta. He goes up there, and toward the end of the interview, he says something absolutely crazy. He says, in response to Caesar, the interviewer, who has been sort of going on about like, oh, you're, you're a fine looking fellow. You must have some, some ladies back home. Someone interested? He says, no, not really. Uh, there's just one. And I don't think she knew I existed until we, we, uh, the, until the games got started this year. And Caesar says, oh, that's too bad. You know, what's the, why? What's the situation there? What's going on? And uh, Peter says, well, she came here with me. Indicating, of course, Katniss herself. What a wild, wild thing to say. And this is the moment that we are left in. This is where we find ourselves. Ah. Oh, the stream dropped again. It was such a good summary, too. Dang it. Stream reconnecting. I'm sure my internet's going to go down in just a second. Oh, that's weird, but Twitch is still working. Oh, good, 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 good. Okay, hold on. Hold on. We might be okay. Hold on. We're f are we fine? Maybe we're fine. I was just telling my recording, because I didn't know if any of y'all could hear me. Um, I was just telling my recording, like, oh. And I was in the midst of such a great recap, too. Because really, that, that might have been my best recap of all time. Y'all, let me know. I'm a, I want a 1 out of 10 for that recap. I, wanna, I want a 1 out of 10 rating. Uh, or, excuse me, a 1 to 10 rating. <laughs> I suppose I suppose if, you re, if it was really bad, you can give me a 1 out of 10. But yeah, give me a, on a scale of 1 to 10, how was that recap? Because I felt like it was a really good one. Uh, so I was going to be really mad if... Uh... <laughs> I was going to be really mad if that one went down on me. It wasn't the last sentence, so like a seven, seven point eight. <laughs> Sander gives gives it a seven point eight, or maybe you mean like a seven or an eight. But uh, hey, Sander, <laughs> thank you for being. I thank you for being honest. Hearthook gave it a nine. Okay, all right. And then I'm seeing uh, Luis gave it a ten. Jade gave it a ten. Noxor gave it a ten. It looks like Discord might be a little bit more on my side than Twitch this week. <laughs> Oh, Sander. Um, and uh, I see it's calling Noxara a new person over on Twitch. We know that's not true. Noxara, hello. Uh, and then Yuyu, like, Yuyu's been hanging out over in, in Discord for a while, but I think he's new over on Twitch as far as I could tell. So Noxara and Yuyu, thank you for uh, continuing to hang out with me. It's been great to have y'all here. Um, okay, all right. I really did think that was, like, one of my best ever uh, recaps. So I'm not going to go back into it. Sparkle Lovegood says, uh, so glad we're doing this today. I need this all week. We'll <laughs> be really needing this. Uh, yes, I, I do hope that we that we can. It sounds like my internet uh, is getting a little bucky on me. Hopefully we've seen the end of it. <laughs> of course, that's the moment, right? Um, 
but uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping this goes well. Uh, Jade, Luis, Noxora, Tanisha, Heart Hug, Yu Yu. Hey, y'all! Thank you so much for being here with me. Even Sander, who gave me like a seven point eight on my recap. Even you, Sander. I'm glad to have you here. <laughs> Let's read, huh? Chapter 10. For a moment, the camera's hold on Peter's downcast eyes as what he says sinks in. And then I can see my face, mouth half open in a mix of surprise and protest, magnified on every screen as I realize, me. He means me. I press my lips together and stare at the floor, hoping this will conceal the emotions starting to boil up inside me. Oh. That is a real piece of bad luck, says Caesar, and there's a real edge of pain in his voice. The crowd is murmuring in agreement. A few have even given agonized cries. It's, it's not good, agrees Peter. Well, I don't think any of us can blame you. It'd be hard not to fall for that young lady. She didn't know, asks Caesar. Peter shakes his head. Not until they're eight now. I allow my eyes to flicker up to the screen long enough to see that the blush on my cheeks is unmistakable. Wouldn't you love to pull her back out here and get a response? Caesar asks the audience. The crowd screams assent. Sadly, rules are rules, and Captain Severdine's time has been spent. Well, best of luck to you, Peter Malark, and I think I speak for all of Pan Am when I say our hearts go with yours. The roar of the crowd is deafening. Peter has absolutely wiped the rest of us off the map with his declaration of love for me. When the audience finally settles down, he chokes out a quiet, thank you, and returns to his seat. We stand for the anthem. I have to raise my head out of the required respect and cannot avoid seeing that every screen is now dominated by a shot of Peta and me, separated by a few feet in the viewers' heads that can never be breached. Poor, tragic us. But I know better. After the anthem, the tributes file back into the training center lobby and into the elevators. I make sure to veer into a car that does not contain Peta. The crowd slows our entourages of stylists and mentors and chaperones, so we only have each other for company. No one speaks. My elevator stops to deposit four tributes before I am alone and then find the doors opening on the twelfth floor. Peter has only just stepped from his car when I slam my palms into his chest. He loses his balance and crashes into an ugly urn filled with fake flowers. The urn tips and shatters into a hundred tiny pieces. Peter lands in the shards, and blood immediately flows from his hands. What was that for? He says, aghast. You had no right. No right to go saying those things about me. 
I shout at him. Now the elevator's open and the whole crew is there. Effie, Haymitch, Cinna, and Portia. What's going on? Says Effie, a note of hysteria in her voice. Did you fall? After she shoved me, said Peter, as Effie and Cinna help him up. Haymitch turns on me. Shove them! This is your idea, wasn't it? Turn me into some kind of fool in front of the entire country, I answer. It was my idea, says Peter, wincing as he pulls spikes of pottery from his palms. Hamish just helped me with it. Yes, Hamish is very helpful. To you, I say. You are a fool, Hamish says in disgust. You think that he hurt you? That boy just gave you something you could never achieve on your own. He made me look weak, I say. He made you look desirable. And let's face it, you can use all the help you can get in that department. You were about as romantic as dirt until he wanted you. Now they all do. They're all talking about it. The star-crossed lovers from District 12, says Hamish. But we're not star-crossed lovers, I say. Hamish grabs my shoulders and pins me against the wall. Who cares? It's all a big show. It's all about how you're perceived. The most I can say about you after your interview is that you're nice enough. Although that in itself was a small miracle. Now I can say you're a heartbreaker. Oh, no doubt how the boys back home fall longingly at your feet. Which do you think is going to get you more sponsors? The smell of wine on his breath makes me sick. I shove his hands off my shoulders and step away, trying to clear my head. Cinna comes over and puts his arm around me. He's right, Katniss. I don't know what to think. I should have been told, so I didn't look so stupid. No, your reaction was perfect. If you'd known, it wouldn't have read as real, says Portia. She's just worried about her boyfriend, says Peter gruffly, tossing a bloody piece of urn away from him. My cheeks burn again at the thought of Gale. I don't have a boyfriend. Whatever, says Peter. But I bet he's smart enough to know a bluff when he sees it. Besides, you didn't say that you loved me, so what does it matter? The words are sinking in. My anger fading. I'm torn now between thinking I've been used and thinking I've been given an edge. Hamish is right. I survived my interview, but what was I really? A silly girl spinning in a sparkling dress. Giggling. The only moment of any substance I had was when I talked about Prim. Compare that with Thresh, his silent, deadly power, and I'm forgettable. Silly and sparkly and forgettable. No, not entirely forgettable. I have my eleven in training. But now Peter has made me an object of love. Not just his. To hear him tell it, I have many admirers. And if the audience really thinks we're in love, I remember how strongly they responded to his confession. Star-crossed lovers. Hamish is right. They eat that stuff up in the capital. Suddenly I'm worried I didn't react properly. After he said he loved me, did you think I could be in love with him too? I ask. 
I did, says Portia. The way you avoided looking at the cameras. The plush. The others chime in, agreeing. You're golden, sweetheart. You can get our sponsors lined up around the block, says Hamish. I'm embarrassed about my reaction. I force myself to acknowledge Peter. I'm sorry I shoved you. Doesn't matter, he shrugs. Although it's technically illegal. Are your hands okay? They'll be all right. In the silence that follows, delicious smells of our dinner waft in from the dining room. Come on, let's eat, says Hamish. We all follow him to the table and take our places. But then Peter is bleeding too heavily and Portia leads him off for medical treatment. We start the cream and rose petal soup without them. By the time we've finished, they're back. Peter's hands are wrapped in bandages. I can't help feeling guilty. Tomorrow we will be in the arena. He's done me a favor and I've answered with an injury. Will I ever stop owing him? After dinner, we watch the replay in the sitting room. I seem frilly and shallow, twirling and giggling in my dress, although the others assure me I'm charming. Peter actually is charming and then utterly winning as the boy in love. And there I am, blushing and confused, made beautiful by Sinna's hands, desirable by Peter's confession, tragic by circumstance, and by all accounts, unforgettable. When the anthem finishes and the screen goes dark, a hush falls on the room. Tomorrow at dawn we will be roused and prepared for the arena. The actual games don't start until ten because so many of the capital residents rise late, but Peter and I must make an early start. There's no telling how far we will travel to the arena that's been prepared for this year's games. I know Hamish and Effie will not be going with us. As soon as they leave here, they'll be going to the game's headquarters, hopefully madly signing up our sponsors, working out a strategy on how and when to deliver the gifts to us. Sinna and Portia will travel with us to the very spot from which we will be launched into the arena. Still, final goodbyes must be said here. Effie takes both of us by the hand and, with actual tears in her eyes, wishes us well. Thanks us for being the best tributes it's ever been her privilege to sponsor. And then because it's Effie and she's apparently required by law to say something awful, she adds, I wouldn't be at all surprised if I finally get promoted to a decent district next year. Then she kisses us each on the cheek and hurries out, overcome with either the emotional parting or the possible improvement of her fortunes. Hamish crosses his arms and looks us both over. Any final words of advice? says Peter. When the gong sounds, get the hell out of there. You're neither of you up to the bloodbath at the cornucopia. Just clear out, put as much distance as you can between yourselves and the others, and find a source of water, he says. Got it? And after that? I ask. Stay alive says Hamish. It's the same advice he gave us on the train, but he's not drunk and laughing this time. And we only nod.
What else is there to say? When I head to my room, Peter lingers to talk to Portia. I'm glad. Whatever strange words of parting we can exchange, we'll wait until tomorrow. My covers are drawn back, but there's no sign of the red-headed Avox girl. I wish I knew her name. I should have asked it. She could write it down, maybe, or act it out. But perhaps that would only result in punishment for her. I take a shower and scrub the gold paint, the makeup, the scent of beauty from my body. All that remains of the design team's efforts are the flames on my nails. I decide to keep them as a reminder of who I am to the audience. Katniss, the girl who was on fire. Perhaps it will give me something to hold on to in the days to come. I pull on a thick, fleecy nightgown and climb into bed. It takes me about five seconds to realize I'll never fall asleep. And I need sleep desperately, because in the arena, every moment I give in to fatigue will be an invitation to death. It's no good. One hour, two, three pass, and my eyelids refuse to get heavy. I can't stop trying to imagine exactly what terrain I'll be thrown into. Desert? Swamp? A frigid wasteland? Above all, I'm hoping for trees, which may afford me some means of concealment and food and shelter. Often there are trees because barren landscapes are dull and the games resolve too quickly without them. But what will the climate be like? What traps have the game makers hidden to liven up the slower movements? And there are my fellow tributes. The more anxious I am to find sleep, the more it eludes me. Finally, I'm too restless to even stay in bed. I pace the floor, heart beating too fast, breathing too short. My room feels like a prison cell. If I don't get air soon, I'm going to start throwing things again. I run down the hall to the door to the roof. It's not only unlocked, but ajar. Perhaps someone forgot to close it, but it doesn't matter. The energy field in closing the roof prevents any form of escape, and I'm not looking to escape, only to fill my lungs with air. I'm going to see the sky and the moon on the last night that no one will be hunting me. The roof is not lit at night, but as soon as my bare feet reach its tiled surface, I see his silhouette, black against the lights that shine endlessly in the capital. There's quite a commotion going on in the streets, music and singing and car horns, none of which I could hear through the thick glass window panels in my room. I could slip away now, without him noticing me. He wouldn't hear me over the din. But the night air is so sweet, I can't bear returning to that stuffy cage of a room. And what difference does it make, whether we speak or not? My feet move soundlessly across the tiles. I'm only a yard behind him when I say, You should be getting some sleep. He starts, but doesn't turn. I can see him give his head a slight shake. Uh, I didn't want to miss the party. That's for us, after all. I come up beside him and lean over the edge of the rail. The wide streets are full of dancing people. I squint to make out their tiny figures in more detail. 
Are they in costumes? Who can tell? Peter answers. With all the crazy clothes they wear here. Couldn't sleep either. Couldn't turn my mind off, I say. You thinking about your family? He asks. No. I admit, a bit guiltily. All I can do is wonder about tomorrow. What is pointless, of course. In the light from below, I can see his face now. The awkward way he holds his bandaged hands. I really am sorry about your hands. Doesn't matter, Katniss. I've never been a contender in these games anyway. That's no way to be thinking. Why not? It's true. My best hope is not to disgrace myself and... He hesitates. And what? I say. I don't know how to say it exactly. Only... I want to... To die as myself. Does that make any sense? He asks. I shake my head. How could he die as anyone but himself? I don't want him to change me in there. Turn me into some kind of monster that I'm not. I bite my lip, feeling inferior. While I've been ruminating on the availability of trees, Peter has been struggling with how to maintain his identity, his purity of self. Do you mean you won't kill anyone? I ask. No. When the time comes, I'm sure I'll kill just like everyone else. I cannot go down without a fight. Only I keep wishing I could think of a way to to, to show the capital that don't own me. That I'm more than just a piece in their games, says Peter. But you're not. None of us are. That's how the games work. Alright, but within that framework, there's still you, there's still me. Don't you see? A little. Only, no offence, but who cares, Peter? I do. I mean, what else am I allowed to care about at this point? He asks angrily. He's locked those blue eyes on me now, demanding an answer. I take a step back. Care about what Hamish said? About staying alive? Peter smiles at me, sad and mocking. All right. Thanks for the tip, sweetheart. It's like a slap in the face. His use of Hamish's patronizing endearment. Look, if you want to spend the last hours of your life planning some noble death in the arena, that's your choice. I want to spend mine in District 12. I wouldn't surprise me if you do. Give my mother my best when you make it back, will you? Count on it, I say. Then I turn and leave the roof. I spend the rest of the night slipping in and out of a doze, imagining the cutting remarks I make to Peter Malark in the morning. Peter Malark. We'll see how high and mighty he is when he's faced with life and death. He'll probably turn into one of those raging beast tributes, the kind who tries to eat someone's heart after they've killed them. There was a guy like that a few years ago from District 6 called Titus. He went completely savage, and the game makers had to have him stunned with electric guns to collect the bodies of the players he'd killed before he ate them. 
There are no rules in the arena, but cannibalism doesn't play well with the capital audience, so they tried to head it off. There was some speculation that the avalanche that finally took Titus out was specifically engineered to ensure the victor was not a lunatic. I don't see Peta in the morning. Senna comes to me before dawn, gives me a simple shift to wear, and guides me to the roof. My final dressing and preparations will be alone in the catacombs under the arena itself. A hovercraft appears out of thin air, just like the one that did in the woods the day I saw the red-headed Avox girl captured, and a ladder drops down. I place my hands and feet on the lower rungs, and instantly it's as if I'm frozen. Some sort of current glues me to the ladder while I'm lifted safely inside. I expect the ladder to release me then, but I'm still stuck when a woman in a white coat approaches me carrying a syringe. This is just your tracker, Katniss. The stiller you are, the more efficiently I can place it, she says. Still, I'm a statue. But that doesn't prevent me from feeling the sharp stab of pain as the needle inserts the metal tracking device deep under the skin in the side of my forearm. Now the game makers will always be able to trace my whereabouts in the arena. Wouldn't want to lose a tribute. As soon as the tracker is in place, the ladder releases me. The woman disappears, and Cinna is retrieved from the roof. An Avox boy comes in and directs us to a room where breakfast has been laid out. Despite the tension in my stomach, I eat as much as I can. Although none of the delectable food makes any impression on me. I'm so nervous I could be eating coal dust. The only thing that distracts me is the view from the windows as we sail over the city and then to the wilderness beyond. This is what birds see. Only they're free and safe. The very opposite of me. The ride lasts about half an hour before the windows black out, suggesting we're nearing the arena. The hovercraft lands, and Cinna and I go back to the ladder. Only this time, it leads down into a tube underground, into the catacombs that lie beneath the arena. We follow instructions to my destination, a chamber for my preparation. In the capital, they call it the launch room. In the districts, it's referred to as the stockyard, the place animals go before slaughter. Everything is brand new. I will be the first and only tribute to use this launch room. The arenas are historic sites, preserved after the games. Popular destinations for capital residents to visit. To vacation. Go for a month, rewatch the games, tour the catacombs, visit the sites where the deaths took place. You can even take part in reenactments. They say the food is excellent. I struggle to keep my breakfast down as I shower and clean my teeth. Cinna does my hair and my simple trademark braid down my back. And the clothes arrive, the same for every tribute. Cinna has had no say in my outfit, does not even know what it will be in the package, but he helps me to dress in the undergarments, simple tawny pants, light green blouse, sturdy brown belt, and thin hooded black jacket that falls down to my thighs. The material in the jacket is designed to reflect body heat. Expect some cool nights, he says. The boots, worn over skin-tight socks, are better than I could have hoped for. Soft leather, not unlike the ones at home. 
These have a narrow, flexible rubber sole with treads on it, though. Good for running. I think I'm finished when Cinna pulls out the gold Mockingjay pin from his pocket. I had completely forgotten about it. Where did you get that? I ask. Off the green outfit you wore on the train, he says. I remember now taking off my mother's dress, pinning it to the shirt. It's your district token, right? I nod and he fastened it on my shirt. It barely cleared the review board. Some thought that the pin could be used as a weapon, giving you an unfair advantage. But eventually they let it through, says Senna. They eliminated a ring from that District 1 girl, though. If you twisted the gemstone, a spike popped out. A poisoned one. She claimed she has no knowledge of the ring transforming, and there's no way to prove she did. But she lost her token. There. You're all set. Move around. Make sure everything feels comfortable. I walk. Run in a circle. Swing my arms about. Yes, it's, it's fine. Fits perfectly. Then there's nothing to do but wait for the call. Unless you think you could eat any more. I turn down food but accept a glass of water that I take tiny sips of as we wait on the couch. I don't want to chew through my nails or my lips, so I find myself gnawing on the inside of my cheek. It still hasn't fully healed from a few days ago. Soon, the taste of blood fills my mouth. Nervousness seeps into terror as I anticipate what is to come. I could be dead. Flat out dead in an hour. Not even. My fingers obsessively trace the hard little lump in my forearm where the woman injected the tracking device. I press on it, even though it hurts. I press on it so hard a small bruise begins to form. Do you want to talk, Katniss? Cinna asks. I shake my head, but after a moment I hold out my hand to him. Cinna encloses it in both of his. And this is how we sit until the pleasant female voice announces it's time to prepare for launch. Still clenching one of Cinna's hands, I walk over and stand on the circular metal plate. Remember what Hamish said? Run, find water. The rest will follow, he says. I nod. And remember this. I'm not allowed to bet, but if I could, my money would be on you. Truly, I whisper. Truly, says Cinna. He leans down and kisses me on the forehead. Good luck girl on fire. And then a glass cylinder is lowered around me, breaking our handhold, cutting him off from me. He taps his fingers under his chin, head high. I lift my chin and stand as straight as I can. The cylinder begins to rise. For maybe fifteen seconds I'm in darkness, and then I can feel the metal plate pushing me out of the cylinder, into the open air. For a moment, my eyes are dazzled by the bright sunlight, and I'm conscious only of a strong wind with the hopeful smell of pine trees. 
and then I hear the legendary announcer, Claudius Templesmith, as his voice booms all around me. Ladies and gentlemen, let the 74th Hunger Games begin! Wow. <laughs> oh boy, the games begin, folks. It's officially time. Sandra says, it would make a good vacation site. Think about the amazing landscapes you could live in for days. I can understand why it's popular. Yeah, this idea of, of turning those old sites, these old uh, arenas, into vacation destinations. Let me see, who who uh, who else brought it up? Somebody else was talking about that as well. I don't see it anymore, though. That's weird. I could have sworn it was Van. No, but uh, yeah, Van says uh, all the cloak and dagger stuff makes a bit more sense now from Peter's end. A little bit, a little bit, maybe. Yu says if Peter was truthful, it must have hurt so much. I'm not even talking about his bloody hand. Katniss's first reaction was to think about how the confession made her look, not about Peter's feelings. <laughs> Sandra says, it looks like a bit of a happy ending, this chapter. Well, I don't know. I don't know, Sandra. Did you did you feel like it had a happy ending by the end there? How y'all feeling about this one? Uh, Sandra says, was that supposed to be Ludo Bagman, or however you spell that name? Um, I, fairly close. Uh, of course, like... Yeah, his his voice is like fairly similar. It's a little bit more southern, but uh, no. When I when I think of an announcer, I always think of the one from uh, Gladiator, uh, who's got that just crazy growly voice that they must have amp. Like I can't imagine trying to trying to project with a voice like that. It must be absolutely nuts. But uh, yeah, there you go, folks. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, as I think is becoming fairly typical here, I'm going to wait and take my break until after this chapter, but I do need to refill my water. So I'm going to be right back. I'm going to try and fix my green screen as well. Before I do that, let me talk about a quick chatter break question, and then uh, we'll do a little spot of review, and then we'll go into our next chapter. Um, chatter break question. We are officially, we're in the arena. The games have begun. Um, I want to do, actually, I want to talk fully about formatting here. I want to talk about like uh, the presentation. You know, we we we've done a decent bit of talking about Peta uh, and Katniss. You know, we've talked about how you know, like the question of is is Peta telling the truth here? Is is this legit what Peta is saying, or is Peta just like full of full of nonsense when it comes to like this this whole uh, long lasting crush on Katniss? We don't have a lot of answers there. We're gonna have to just see how it plays out. So we're gonna, I want to talk a little bit about formatting and structure. Let's talk about structure of this story. Um, we have taken a full nine chapters to get into the arena. That to me seems like it's kind of antithetical to the way that a lot of things are handled these days, right? It seems like nowadays you would want to be inside the arena by like, by chapter three and like the halfway point of chapter three, right? It, it seems like nowadays 
I don't know. I, I mean, I do think people's people's uh, uh, attention spans are genuinely a little less. But I think there's kind of a vicious cycle there between shorter attention spans, but media that contributes to shorter attention spans, right? There's always like you, you gotta you gotta have the show, you know, your TV show be in full swing by the end of episode one. You have to have your your book really, you know, the end of uh, chapter one. You have to sort of know where everything's about, uh, and your screenplay. You gotta know like within the first five pages what this. Thing, very, very fast-paced. And so to to be a full third of the way through this book before we're ever in the arena, right, which I think we can fairly say that is sort of, on, on the most surface level, that is, quote, what this book is about, end quote. Um, even though, as we've talked about before, it's it's more about propaganda and, and uh, you know, tyranny, but we're, we're not into that yet. We're a full third of this way into the book before... We are even in the arena. I my chatterbreak question is: How has that impacted our story? I'm not gonna make it. I'm not gonna dictate whether that's positive or negative. I want to know from you. Let's say that this whole thing. Let's say we had spent like a chapter or maybe two outside the arena, and then we just launched straight in, right? And I don't mean like two super long chapters. I mean you have to cut out eight, uh, uh, seven full chapters from from the beginning of this book. How do you think that would have impacted your enjoyment, your understanding, uh, your connection with some of these characters? That's my chatterbait question. If if this book really did just launch in after about two chapters straight into the games, how would that have changed your experience and your understanding of this book? There's our chatterbait question. All right, I'm gonna go fill up my water. I'll be back. Talk about that in chat. I'll be back in a moment. Hold on a sec, you nerds. I'll be right back.
Okay, I'm back. Sorry, that was such a long break. Uh, our our little blue boy was being the cutest boy he ever has been. Uh, let me go ahead and put that picture in Discord right now. This is for y'all. Uh, <laughs> 10 out of 10 cute boy. Uh, trust up like a chicken. Okay, there you go. That's for y'all. Uh, just had to just had to sneak in there real quick and grab a little bit of that action. So, I'm back officially. Now, uh, this chatter rate question. Um, let's see. You you says to me it's evidence this book might be called The Hunger Games, but it's much broader than that. It's about a whole society. It's about what's behind the games. Um, and you you I think you are you're right there. I think that is that is. That is, I think, a really, really um, uh, keen observation. I think it is signaling, um, and not, not even you know signaling, but actually the the substance of it is, it is covering things that aren't just about the games. Which I think I, I have seen other instances of young adult literature, especially, but any sort of fantasy, and for many purposes, I consider science fiction a part of fantasy, just a future fantasy rather than a past fantasy. Um, I see it often miss the point, right? Or or maybe not miss the point, but at the very least sort of enjoy too much the idea that like, oh yeah, this show is about like big mechs or, or like, or, uh, you know, um, uh, crazy uh, uh, nature magic, right? Yeah, you can have a show that's about those things, but the ones that really hit hard are the ones that use something like that to make a statement that, is more relevant to actual living human beings. Um, uh, people who are actually alive who don't spend their time in big mechs or, uh, uh, you know, doing nature magic. <laughs> those weren't, like, specific instances. I don't have any specific media in mind for those. Those were just sort of examples of, of you know, what you could do with a story like this, which is to just focus on, like, yeah, it's about it's about killing people. It's about surviving in the wilderness and, and doing death stuff to people. All right? It could have been about that. But we can clearly see it's not quite about that, is it? Awkward Sushi says, uh, If it launched in that soon, a lot of the character development would have been cut out. We wouldn't have gotten to understand District 12 and how the stylists and the interviews impacted the games. The structure is written... Uh, the, oh, the structure that it's written in lets us really see how the capital is and how much the games are really just their sick entertainment. Yes, yes, I think that's a great expansion on what Yu was saying, which is that, yeah, this, it's about more than the games. It is about the the people um, who sort of let the games exist and why and how. Absolutely. <laughs> Sparkle Lovegood, what a project. <laughs> I'm going to get a quick picture of chat. Just a second. Not important. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what a project. Just working hard, huh? Sparkle Lovegood. <laughs> Sorry about your day. <laughs> Goofy. Okay. As much as I would love to really dwell on that, we're not going to. Um, <laughs> so goofy. Uh, oh, man. Uh, the uh, Oh, that's right, because y'all can see it on screen, can't you? <laughs> it's gone now, though. If you don't know, you'll have to go back and find it. Um, okay. Dollar... <laughs> 
Dolly says I'm coming back to clip this one for sure. Now, uh, let's talk a bit of review. Um, I think y'all are y'all are correct. I think we we would lose if we if we just launch straight in. We would lose a lot of the development that we get, and we would we would lose this understanding that it's about why the games, not how the games, right? It, it's it's not about how the games go. It's not about the you know the winner and the loser. It's about the the winning and the losing in society of of what impact these games these games have, and how these games are allowed to exist and how they came to exist in the first place. Absolutely. Okay. Now. Uh, in our first chapter of the day, chapter 10, uh, we finish up this little encounter after PETA reveals his love. I'm going to give that a half quotation mark. Is it in quotations? Is it true? Who knows? Um, impossible to tell yet. At least uh, at least that's where Katniss is at. Um, and then we launch into the games. There's not a lot that happens in between. Haymitch insists that this is good for Katniss. This is going to help her to get sponsors. Um, and uh, she has a little conversation. This is the, sort of the last thing that happens before we go in, is that Katniss's conversation with PETA essentially consists of uh, her apologizing for the reaction that she had and PETA saying he doesn't really believe he's got a chance in this. He's not here expecting to win. It would be great if, you know, he could, but... Really, what he wants out of these games is to go home with the knowledge that they didn't change him. That he held on to something that was himself. He's not sure how he's going to accomplish that sense. How he's going to communicate that or experience it even for himself. But he doesn't want, the, he doesn't want to allow them to know that they've changed him. He'll probably kill just like anybody else, but even he's not totally sure how he's going to accomplish this thing yet. Um, and uh, Katniss kind of thinks it's it's foolish to be thinking about this when you should be thinking about how to survive in the next 24 hours. There it is. Folks, thank you very much for hanging out. Let's launch into Chapter 11, our next chapter for the evening. Chapter 11. 60 seconds. That's how long we're required to stand on our metal circles before the sound of a gong releases us. Step off before the minute is up and landmines blow your legs off. 60 seconds to take in the ring of tributes all equidistant from the cornucopia. A giant golden horn shaped like a cone with a curved tail. The mouth of which is at least 20 feet high, spilling over with things that would give life here in the arena. Food. Containers of water, weapons, medicine, garments, fire starters. Strewn around the cornucopia are other supplies. Their value decreasing the further they are from the horn. For instance, only a few steps away from my feet lays a three-foot square of plastic. Certainly it could be of some use in a downpour. But there in the mouth, I can see a tent pack that would protect us from almost any sort of weather. If I had the guts to go in and fight for it against the other 23 tributes which I've been instructed not to do. 
were on a flat, open stretch of ground. A plain of hard-packed dirt. Behind the tributes across from me, I can see nothing, indicating either a steep downward slope or even a cliff. To my right lies a lake. To the left and back, sparse, piney woods. This is where Hamish would want me to go. Immediately. I can hear his instructions in my head. Just clear out! Put as much distance as you can between yourselves and the others, and find a source of water. But it's tempting. So tempting when I see the bounty waiting there before me. And I know that if I don't get it, someone else will. That the career tributes who survive the bloodbath will divide up most of these life-containing spoils. Something catches my eye. There, resting on a mound of blanket rolls is a silver sheath of arrows and a bow, already strung, just waiting to be engaged. That's mine, I think. It's meant for me. I'm fast. I can sprint faster than any of the girls in our school, although a couple can beat me in distance races. But this 40-yard length, this is what I'm built for. I know I can get it. I know I can reach it first, but then the question is, how quickly can I get out of there? By the time I've scrambled up the packs and grabbed the weapons, others will have reached the horn. And one or two I might be able to pick off, but say there's a dozen. At close range, they could take me down with the spears and the clubs. Or their own powerful fists. Still, I won't be the only target. I'm betting many of the other tributes will pass up a smaller girl, even one who scored an 11 in training to take out their more fierce adversaries. Hamish has never seen me run. Maybe if he had seen it, he would have told me to go for it, get the weapons, since that's the very weapon that might be my salvation, and I can only see one bow in that pile. I know the minute must be almost up, and I'll have to decide what my strategy will be, and I find myself positioning my feet to run, not away into the forest, but toward the pile, toward the bow. Then suddenly I notice Peter. He's about five tributes to my right, quite a fair distance. Still, I can tell he's looking at me, and I think he might be shaking his head. But the sun's in my eyes, and while I'm puzzling over it, the gong rings out. And I've missed it. I've missed my chance, because those extra couple of seconds I've lost by not being ready are enough to change my mind about going in. My feet shuffle for a moment, confused at the direction my brain wants to take, and I lunge forward, scoop up the sheet of plastic and a loaf of bread. The pickings are so small, and I'm angry with Peter for distracting me. I sprint in 20 yards to retrieve a bright orange backpack that could hold anything because I can't stand leaving with virtually nothing. A boy, I think from District 9, reaches the pack at the same time I do and for a brief moment we grapple for it and then he coughs, splattering my face with blood. I stagger back, repulsed by the warm, sticky spray. Then the boy slips to the ground. That's when I see the knife in his back. Already, other tributes have reached the cornucopia and are spreading out to attack. Yes, the girl from District 2, ten yards away, running toward me, one hand clutching a half-dozen knives. I've seen her throw in training. She never misses. And I'm her next target. All the general fear I've been feeling condenses into an immediate fear of this girl, this predator who might kill me in seconds. Adrenaline shoots through me, and I sling the backpack over one shoulder and full sprint into the woods. 
I can hear the blade whistling toward me and reflexively hike the pack up to protect my head. The blade lodges in the pack. Both straps on my shoulders now I make for the trees. Somehow, I know the girl will not pursue me. That she'll be drawn back into the cornucopia before all the good stuff is gone. A grin crosses my face. Thanks for the knife, I think. At the edge of the woods, I turn for one instant to survey the field. About a dozen or so tributes are hacking away at one another at the horn. Several lie dead already on the ground. Those who have taken flight are disappearing into the trees or into the void opposite me. I continue running until the woods have hidden me from the other tributes, then slow to a steady jog that I think I can maintain for a while. For the next few hours, I alternate between jogging and walking, putting as much distance as I can between myself and my competitors. I lost my bread during the struggle with the boy from District 9, but managed to stuff the plastic into my sleeve. So as I walk, I fold it neatly and tuck it into a pocket. I also free the knife. It's a fine one, with a long, sharp blade, serrated near the handle, which would make it handy for sawing through things. And I slide it into my belt. I don't dare to stop and examine the contents of the pack yet. I just keep moving, pausing only to check for pursuers. I can go a long time. I know that from my days in the woods, but I will need water. That was Hamish's second instruction, and since I sort of botched the first one, I keep a sharp eye out for any sign of it. No luck. The woods begin to evolve, and the pines are intermixed with a variety of trees, some I recognize, some completely foreign to me. At one point, I hear a noise and pull my knife, thinking I may have to defend myself, but I've only startled a rabbit. Could you say ya? I whisper. If there's one rabbit, there could be hundreds just waiting to be snared. The ground slopes down. I don't particularly like this. I want to be high up, like in the hills around District 12, where I can see my enemies approaching. But I have no chance but to keep going. Funny, though, I don't feel too bad. The days of gorging myself have paid off. I've got staying power, even though I'm short on sleep. Being in the woods rejuvenating. I'm glad for the solitude, even though it's an illusion, because I'm probably on screen right now. Not consistently, but on and off. There are so many deaths to show the first day that a tribute trekking through the woods isn't much to look at. But they'll show me enough to let people know I'm alive uninjured, and on the move. One of the heaviest days of betting is the opening, when the initial casualties come in, but that can't compare to what happens as the field shrinks to a handful of players. It's late afternoon when I begin to hear the cannons. Each shot represents a dead tribute. The fighting must have finally stopped at the cornucopia. They never collect the bloodbath bodies until the killers have dispersed. On the opening day, they don't even fire the cannons until the initial fighting's over because it's too hard to keep track of the fatalities. I allow myself to pause, panting, as I count the shots. One, two, three. 
on and on till they reach eleven. Eleven dead in all. Thirteen left in play. My fingernails scrape at the dried blood the boy from District 9 coughed into my face. He's gone, certainly. I wonder about Peter. Has he lasted through the day? I'll know in a few hours, when they project the dead's images into the sky for the rest of us to see. All of a sudden, I'm overwhelmed by the thought that Peter might already be lost. Bled white, collected in the process of being transported back to the capital. To be cleaned up, redressed, and shipped in a simple wooden box back to District 12. No longer here. Heading home. I tried hard to remember if I saw him once the action started. But the last image I can conjure up of Peter is him shaking his head as the gong rang out. Maybe it's better if he's gone already. He had no confidence he would win. And I will not end up with the unpleasant task of killing him. Maybe it's better if he's out for good. I slump down next to my pack, exhausted. I need to go through it anyway before night falls, see what I have to work with. As I unhook the straps, I can feel it's sturdy made, although a rather unfortunate color. This orange will practically glow in the dark. I make a mental note to camouflage it first thing tomorrow. I flip open the flap. What I want most right at this moment is water. Hamish's directive to immediately find water was not arbitrary. I won't last long without it. For a few days, I'll be able to function with unpleasant symptoms of dehydration, but after that, I'll deteriorate into helplessness and be dead in a week, tops. I carefully lay out the provisions. One thin black sleeping bag that reflects body heat, a pack of crackers, a pack of dried beef strips, a bottle of iodine, a box of wooden matches, a small coil of wire, a pair of sunglasses, and a half-gallon plastic bottle with a cap for carrying water that's bone dry. No water. How hard would it have been for them to fill up the bottle? I become aware of the dryness in my throat and mouth, the cracks in my lips. I've been moving all day long. It's been hot and I've sweat a lot. I do this at home, but there's always a stream to drink from, or snow to melt if it should come to it. As I refill my pack, I have an awful thought. The lake. The one I saw while I was waiting for the gong to sound. What if that's the only water source in the arena? That way they'll guarantee drawing us in to fight. The lake is a full day's journey from where I sit now. A much harder journey with nothing to drink. And then even if I reach it, it's sure to be heavily guarded by some of the career tributes. I'm about to panic when I remember the rabbit I startled earlier today. It has to drink too. I just have to find out where. Twilight is closing in and I am ill at ease. The trees are too thin to offer much concealment. The layer of pine needles that muffles my footsteps also makes tracking animals harder when I need their trails to find water. And I'm still heading downhill, deeper and deeper into a valley that seems endless. I'm hungry, too, but I don't dare break into my precious store of crackers and beef yet. Instead, I take my knife and go to work on a pine tree, cutting away the outer bark and scraping off a large handful of the soft inner bark. 
I slowly chew on the stuff as I walk along. After a week of the finest food in the world, it's a little hard to choke down. But I've eaten plenty of pine in my life. I'll adjust quickly. In another hour, it's clear I've got to find a place to camp. Night creatures are coming out. I can hear the occasional hoot or howl. My first clue that I'll be competing with natural predators for the rabbits. As to whether I'll be viewed as a source of food, it's too soon to tell. There could be any number of animals stalking me at this moment. But right now, I decide to make my fellow tributes a priority. I'm sure many will continue hunting through the night. Those who fought it out at the cornucopia will have food, an abundance of water from the lake, torches or flashlights, and weapons that they are itching to use. I can only hope I've traveled far and fast enough to be out of range. Before settling down, I take my wire and set two twitch-up snares in the brush. I know it's risky to be setting traps, but food will go so fast out here. And I can't set snares on the run. Still, I walk another five minutes before making camp. I pick my tree carefully. A willow, not terribly tall, but set in a clump of other willows, offering concealment in those long, flowing tresses. I climb up, sticking to the stronger branches close to the trunk, and find a sturdy fork for my bed. It takes some doing, but I arrange the sleeping bag in a relatively comfortable manner. I place my backpack at the foot of the bag, and slide in after it. As a precaution, I remove my belt, loop it all the way around the branch and my sleeping bag, and refasten it at my waist. Now, if I roll over in my sleep, I won't go crashing to the ground. I'm small enough to tuck the top of the bag over my head, but I put on my hood as well. As the night falls, the air is cooling quickly. Despite the risk I took in getting the backpack, I know now it was the right choice. This sleeping bag, radiating back and preserving my body heat, will be invaluable. I'm sure there are several other tributes whose biggest concern right now is how to stay warm, whereas I might actually be able to get a few hours of sleep. If only I wasn't so thirsty. Night has come just when I hear the anthem that precedes the death recap. Through the branches I can see the seal of the capital, which appears to be floating in the sky. I'm actually viewing another screen, an enormous one that's transported by one of their disappearing hovercraft. The anthem fades out and the sky goes dark for a moment. At home we would be watching full coverage of each and every killing, but that's thought to give an unfair advantage to the living tributes. For instance, if I got my hands on a bow and shot someone, my secret would be revealed to all. Now, here in the arena... All we see are the same photographs they showed when they televised our training scores. Simple headshots. But now, instead of scores, they post only the district numbers. I take a deep breath as the face of the eleven dead tributes begin to tick off one by one on my fingers. The first to appear is the girl from District 3. That means the career tributes from 1 and 2 have all survived, no surprise there. Then the boy from four. I didn't expect that one. Usually all the careers make it through the first day. The boy from District 5. I guess the fox-faced girl made it. Both tributes from six and seven. The boy from eight. Both from nine. Yep, there's the boy who I fought for the backpack. 
I've run through my fingers. Only one more dead tribute to go. Is it Peta? No. There's the girl from District 10. That's it. The Capitol Seal is back with a final musical flourish. Then darkness and the sounds of the forest resume. I'm relieved Peta's alive. I tell myself again that if I get killed, his winning will benefit my mother and Prim the most. This is what I tell myself to explain the conflicting emotions that arise when I think of Peta. The gratitude that he gave me an edge by professing his love for me in the interview. The anger at his superiority on the roof. The dread that we may come face to face at any moment in this arena. Eleven dead, but none from District 12. I try to work out who's left. Five career tributes. Foxface. Thresh and Rue. Rue. So she made it through the first day after all. I can't help feeling glad. That makes ten of us. The other three I'll figure out tomorrow. Now, when it's dark and I've traveled far, and I'm nestled high in this tree, now I must try to rest. I haven't really slept in two days, and then there's been the long journey to the arena. Slowly, I allow my muscles to relax, my eyes to close. The last thing I think is that it's lucky I don't snore. Snap. The sound of a breaking branch wakes me. How long have I been asleep? Four hours? Five? The tip of my nose is icy cold. Snap. Snap. What's going on? This is not the sound of a branch under someone's foot, but the sharp crack of one coming from a tree. I judge it to be several hundred yards to my right. Slowly, noiselessly, I turn myself in that direction. For a few minutes, there's nothing but blackness and some scuffling. Then I see a spark and a small fire begins to bloom. A pair of hands warms over the flames, but I can't make out more than that. I have to bite my lip not to scream every foul name I know at the fire starter. What are they thinking? A fire at nightfall would have been one thing. Those who battled the cornucopia with their superior strength and surplus of supplies, they couldn't possibly have been near enough to spot the flames then, but now, when they've probably been combing the woods for hours looking for victims, you might as well be waving a flag and shouting, Come and get me! But here I am, a stone's throw from the biggest idiot in the games, strapped in a tree, not daring to flee since my general location has just been broadcast to any killer who cares, I mean, I know it's cold out here and not everybody has a sleeping bag, but you grit your teeth and stick it out till dawn. I lay smoldering in my bag for the next couple of hours, really thinking that if I can get out of this tree, I won't have the least problem taking out my new neighbor. My instinct has been to flee, not fight. But obviously, this person's a hazard. Stupid people are dangerous. And this one probably doesn't have much in the way of weapons, while I have this excellent knife. The sky is still dark, but I can feel the first signs of dawn approaching. I'm beginning to think that we, meaning the person whose death I'm now devising and me, we might actually have gone unnoticed. And then I hear it. Several pairs of feet breaking into a run. The fire starter must have dozed off. 
they're on her before she can escape. I know it's a girl now. I can tell by the pleading, the agonized scream that follows. And there's laughter and congratulations from several voices. Someone cries out, Twelve down and eleven to go, which gets a round of appreciative hoots. So they're fighting in a pack. I'm not really surprised. Often alliances are formed in the early stages of the games. The strong band together to hunt down the weak, and then, when the tension becomes too great, begin to turn on one another. I don't have to wonder too hard to know who has made this alliance. It'll be the remaining career tributes from Districts 1, 2, and 4. Two boys and three girls. The ones who lunched together. For a moment, I can hear them checking the girl for supplies. I can tell by their comments they've found nothing good. I wonder if the victim is Rue, but I quickly dismiss the thought. She's much too bright to be building a fire like that. Better clear out so they can get the body before it starts stinking. I'm almost certain that's the brutish boy from District 12. There are murmurs of assent, and then to my horror, I hear the pack heading toward me. They don't know I'm here. How could they? And I'm well concealed in the clump of trees. At least while the sun stays down. Then my black sleeping bag will turn from camouflage to trouble. If they just keep moving, they'll pass me and be gone in a minute. But the careers stop in the clearing about ten yards from my tree. They have flashlights, torches. I can see an arm here, a boot there, through the breaks in the branches. I turn to stone, not even daring to breathe. Have they spotted me? No, not yet. I can tell from their words their minds are elsewhere. Shouldn't we have heard a cannon by now? I'd say yes. Nothing to prevent them from going in immediately. Unless she isn't dead. She's dead. I stuck her myself. Then where's the cannon? Someone should go back. Make sure the job's done. Yeah, well, we don't want to have to track her down twice. I said she's dead. An argument breaks out until one tribute silences the others. We're wasting time. I'll go and finish her off and then let's move. I almost fall out of my tree. The voice belongs to Peta. Well, well, well. A never-ending fountain of surprises, this Peter Malark, it would seem. Folks, this is the end of chapters two of the three that we intend to read today. Everyone, thank you for Thank you for joining me so much. My name is Sam, and this is Sidecar Stories. This is Thursday, which means Flying Sidecar a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Now, everyone, I hope that you have enjoyed what we've seen here today. Uh, but of course, we've got one chapter left. And I'm glad that we do, because this, this is a cliffhanger I do not want to end on. I've had a few that we've ended on where I think to myself, okay, 
all right, that's a reasonable place to stop. This is not one of them. What is PETA up to? And that is our Chatterbreak question. It's as simple as that. What is PETA up to here? Uh, Sandra says, I will take some sleep. <laughs> Van says, this dude just can't stick to one version of himself. PETA with another shocker. Honestly, Van, yeah. Uh, and we know, you know, that's part of a, that's part of a strategy, right? Wherein people have uh, come in with this sense of like, oh, I'm just like a little, oh, I, I couldn't possibly fight. I'm just a sweet little, no. And then they turn out to be vicious. Um, you know, we've, we've, I think, Joanna Mason, if I remember correctly. Is that right? I want to say that's the name. Um, from District 7. I have no no memory of that, of which district she's from. Uh, but we know this is a strategy some people use. Just do the unexpected and people don't know sort of what move you're going to make next. Right? It's a, it's, a, it's a reasonable strategy and probably, frankly, the one that I would end up using. Uh, Sander, have a great night. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you also to uh, Van, Sander, uh, Archer Kid... Uh, let's see, you, you, Louise, Sparkle Love Good, Dahlia, hey, y'all, thank you so much for being here. Sloth Creature, I see you. Uh, Sloth Creature has posted some additional cats over in the, uh, <laughs> over in the Hunger Games discussion channel, and boy, these things are cute. The very, the very shy one down below. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very good about these cute cats being posted over in uh, the Hunger Games discussion. Uh, additionally, Archer Kid has subscribed for a month at tier one. They've been subscribed for 18 months. Archer Kid, that's like, that's up there. Archer Kid. Archer Kid says, "Thanks, Sam. You've given my girlfriend and me countless hours of enjoyment. Enjoyment. She literally listens to your Harry Potter every day. Keep being awesome. I am really glad y'all are enjoying it." Uh, thank you everyone so much for being here y'all you're amazing thank you so much and uh i'm gonna see you in five minutes for our next and final chapter of the evening chapter 12 that's right we got one more going in we got one more chatterbreak question is what is Peta doing i'll see you all in five There it is, folks. Welcome back. I hope you are well. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it has been a joy to hang out with y'all so far, and we have got one more chapter left to go. Um, chapter 12. We have to talk about a bit of review, but first let's talk about our Chatterbreak question. Um, why is PETA doing what he's doing here? I guess it makes sense to do a little bit of review first. No, no, let's, let's keep up with custom. For the people who are arriving at the very latest, the very last second, I'll do the I'll do the the recap last. So instead, Chatterbreak question: Peta, why is he doing what he's doing? Van saves lives. Says you gotta wonder what he did to win them over in the actual arena. Obviously, he didn't talk to them much beforehand. Yes, indeed. How did Peta like make an impression to these career tributes that said like, yeah, make me part of your group, right? What what did he do in those first? I mean, it must have been seconds right that for those first 60 seconds he must have done something impressive awkward susie says i remember the first time i read this book i was so confused by the emotional whiplash that Peta gives off yes um and i i would say for me at the very least it is fortunately reading as um a complicated character rather than just a nonsense character right we've talked about characters who have like um we've talked about characters who they've got their rules for themselves and then those 
characters who are clearly characters. They're not sort of real people. Um, they're not consistent internally. They don't do things that make sense. Um, and they, they, they often do things just to sort of advance the plot line. Uh, this, this is strange. We know that sort of what PETA does and what he does well is sort of playing the game well. Maybe not the best fighter. Maybe not the best, uh, you know, hunter. Maybe not the best survivalist. But he plays the game well. He does interesting things. Things that, like, it, it seems like, you know, uh, it wouldn't make much sense for PETA as a person, but it's almost like PETA had, like, spent time reviewing the games, right? Like, he was a, a lifelong games fan and uh, just sort of knew the system really well. But it seems like, for the most part, it sort of comes down to just good instincts. He has good instincts for this particular pursuit. Um, and so, maybe those same instincts that have allowed PETA to... Uh, you know, to continue on with uh, the the interviews and seeing people in the Capitol and just sort of making himself look like a real charismatic young fighter. Maybe that same instinct has carried him through and made an impression on these career tributes. Interesting. An interesting character, this Peter Malark. Uh, and with that, folks, let's talk a bit of review. We are in chapter 12 now. This is the third chapter of part two, right? Part one being the tributes, part two being the games. Uh, chapters 11 and, excuse me, chapters 10 and 11. Chapter 10 and 11. Um, chapter 10, sorry. That's what I get for fiddling with remote controls and stuff at my desk. Um, the, uh, the, the chapter 10 is mostly covering the last events before the games actually begin. Um, it is the last glimpse we see of, the last conversation we have with PETA, last glimpse we see of Haymitch and Effie and uh, Cinna. It turns out that uh, at the very end during uh, of uh, part one, during the interviews, sounds like PETA kind of gave Katniss a leg up, look, make, making her look desirable, making her look like this big dramatic figure, uh, even more so than she already is. Uh, it sounds like it might help her get some sponsors. Um, they have this conversation, Katniss and PETA, where PETA sort of explains, like, I don't want the games, I don't want to let the games change me. And I, I want to show them somehow that I'm still me. He doesn't know how he's going to do it. Katniss thinks it's pretty silly to focus on anything but just surviving. Uh, and that's the last long conversation they have with one another. They head to the games. They emerge into the arena. Fortunately for Katniss, there are trees indeed. She even sees a bow at the cornucopia. Big horn shaped. You ever see, uh, a cornucopia for some people? Like it might not be a shape that's familiar. Uh, if you are familiar with American Thanksgiving, um, the cornucopia is a frequent sort of image that comes up. It's typically this woven thing which looks a lot like a a horn, right? Like a, like a horn, like an old ram's horn kind of thing. Um, and uh, generally, it is full of uh, sort of decorative squashes in rich people's houses. But um, here. It is enormous, you know, the mouth of it is 20 feet tall, uh, and it appears to be filled with supplies. Um, great ones toward the center, worse and worse ones toward the outside, but still potentially valuable. And Katniss has been advised by Haymitch, don't go for the cornucopia, just get away, far, far away, as far away as you can, as soon as possible, then worry about water, and then after that, just survive. 
it seems like light advice, right? Maybe maybe offer a little bit more Haymitch, but of course, if Haymitch trains them for you know some sort of desert competition and they end up in the in the tundra, they've spent a lot of time sort of learning things that might actively hurt them. So frankly, he just gives the only advice that truly, truly is applicable in all of these situations. Get away. Don't go for the tempting gear in the center and then find water. If you was to add a third thing, I suppose maybe some shelter, but even that, you know, that even that's dicey. Get away, find shelter. It appears that this particular arena, uh, it has a lake near the center. Uh, there's, there's maybe a big cliff or a big slope on one side, but that's not important to Katniss right now. She runs the other direction into the woods, uh, but not before spending a little time breaking rule one, right? Rule one, get away as quickly as possible. She decides she wants some of that stuff. She wants to go for the bow that she sees there. It's the only bow she sees. And she knows that might be her saving grace, but she hesitates just for a moment. Uh, instead, picking up a, a backpack that has some uh, a little bit of food, some water purification tablets, and um, uh, I guess iodine for purifying water. Uh, and then, um, you know, just like a little plastic tarp. And she manages to get a knife thrown at her, uh, which she sort of, <laughs> which gets stuck in the pack. And so she's got a decent knife on her now as well but she needs that water and we shall see in this chapter whether she is able to track down the water after all that's not the sound that's not the music you know what <laughs> i'm gonna add an edit note for myself because i thought i was really on a roll there we shall see if she's able to track down the water after all there we go Chapter 12. Thank goodness I had the foresight to belt myself in. I've rolled sideways off the fork and I'm facing the ground, held in place by the belt, one hand, and my feet straddling the pack inside my sleeping bag, braced against the trunk. There must have been some rustling when I tipped sideways, but the careers have been too caught up in their own argument to catch it. Go on then, lover boy, says the boy from District 2. See for yourself. I just get a glimpse of Peter, lit by a torch, heading back to the girl by the fire. His face is swollen with bruises, there's a bloody bandage on one arm, and from the sound of his gait, he's limping somewhat. I remember him shaking his head, telling me not to go into the fight for the supplies, when all along, all along, he'd planned to throw himself into the thick of things. Just the opposite of what Hamish had told him to do. Okay, I could stomach that. Seeing all the supplies was tempting, but this... This is another thing. This teaming up with the career wolf pack to hunt down the rest of us. No one from District 12 would think of doing such a thing. Career tributes are overly vicious. Arrogant, better fed, but only because they're the capital's lapdogs. Universally, solidly hated by all but those from their own districts. I can imagine the things they're saying about him back home now. 
and Peter had the gall to talk to me about disgrace. Obviously, the noble boy on the rooftop was playing just one more game with me. But this will be his last. I will eagerly watch the skies for signs of his death, if I don't kill him first myself. The career tributes are hushed until he gets out of earshot, and then begin to use quiet voices. Why don't we just kill him now and get it over with? Let him tag along. What's the harm? He's handy with that knife. Is he? That's news. What a lot of interesting things I'm learning about my friend Peter today. Besides, he's our best chance of finding her. It takes me a moment to register that the her they're referring to is me. Why? You think she bought into the sappy romance stuff? She might have. Seemed pretty simple-minded to me. Every time I think about her spinning around in that dress, I want to puke. Wish I knew how she got that eleven. I bet you lover boy knows. The sound of Peter returning silences them. Was she dead? Asks the boy from District 2. Nope. But she has no, says Peter. Just then the cannon fires. Ready to move on? The career pack heads off at a run just as dawn begins to break, and birdsong fills the air. I remain in my awkward position, muscles trembling with exertion for a while longer, and then hoist myself back into my branch. I need to get down, to get going, but for a moment I lie there, digesting what I've heard. Not only is Peter with the careers, he's helping them to find me. The simple-minded girl who has to be taken seriously because of her eleven. Because she can use a bow and arrow which Peter knows better than anyone. But he hasn't told them yet. Is he saving that information because he knows it's all that keeps him alive? Is he still pretending to love me for the audience? What is going on in his head? Suddenly, the birds fall silent. Then one gives a high-pitched warning call, a single note. Just like the one Gale and I heard when the red-headed Avox girl was caught. High above the dying campfire, a hovercraft materializes. A set of huge metal teeth drops down. Slowly, gently, the dead tribute girl is lifted into the hovercraft. Then it vanishes. The birds resume their song. Move, I whisper to myself. I wriggle out of my sleeping bag, roll it up, and place it into the pack. I take a deep breath. While I've been concealed by darkness in the sleeping bag and the willow branches, it has been difficult for the cameras to get a good shot of me. I know they must be tracking me now, though. The minute I hit the ground, I'm guaranteed a close-up. The audience will have been beside themselves, knowing I was in the tree, that I overheard the careers talking, that I discovered Peter was with them. Until I work out exactly how I want to play that, I'd better at least act on top of things. Not perplexed, certainly not confused or frightened. No, I need to look one step ahead of the game. So as I slide out of the foliage and into the dawn light, I pause a second, giving the cameras time to lock on me. And I cock my head slightly to the side and give a knowing smile. There. Let them figure out what that means. I'm about to take off when I think of my snares. 
Maybe it's imprudent to check them with the others so close, but I have to. Too many years of hunting, I guess. And the lure of possible meat. I'm rewarded with one fine rabbit. In no time, I've cleaned and gutted the animal, leaving the head, feet, tail, skin, and innards under a pile of leaves. I'm wishing for a fire. Eating raw rabbit can give you rabbit fever, a lesson I learned the hard way. But when I think of the dead tribute, I hurry back to her camp. Sure enough, the coals of her dying fire are still hot. I cut up the rabbit, fashion a spit out of the branches, and set it over the coals. I'm glad for the cameras now. I want the sponsors to see that I can hunt, that I'm a good bet because I won't be lured into traps as easily as the others will by hunger. While the rabbit cooks, I grind up part of a charred branch and set about camouflaging my orange pack. The black tones it down, but I feel a layer of mud would definitely help. Of course, to have mud, I would need water. I pull on my gear, grab my spit, kick some dirt over the coals, and take off in the direction opposite from the careers. I eat half the rabbit as I go, and then wrap up the leftovers in my plastic for later. The meat stops the grumbling in my stomach, but does little to quench my thirst. Water is my top priority now. As I hike along, I feel certain I'm still holding the screen in the capital, so I'm careful to continue to hide my emotions. But what a good time Claudius Templesmith must be having with his guest commentators, dissecting Peter's behavior, my reaction. What to make of it all? Has Peter revealed his true colors? How does this affect the betting odds? Will we lose sponsors? Do we even have sponsors? Yes, I feel certain that we do, or at least did. Certainly Peta has thrown a wrench into our star-crossed lover dynamic. Or has he? Maybe, since he hasn't spoken much about me, we can still get some mileage out of it. Maybe people will think it's somehow something we plotted together, if it seems like it amuses me now. The sun rises in the sky, and even through the canopy it seems overly bright. I coat my lips in some grease from the rabbit and try to keep from panting, but it's no use. It's only been a day, and I'm dehydrating fast. I try and think of everything I know about finding water. It runs downhill, so, in fact, continuing down into this valley isn't a bad thing. If I could just locate a game trail or spot a particularly green patch of vegetation, these might help me along, but nothing seems to change. There's just the slight, gradual slope. The birds. The sameness to the trees. As the day wears on, I know I'm headed for trouble. What little urine I've been able to pass is dark brown, my head is aching, and there's a dry patch on my tongue that refuses to moisten. The sun hurts my eyes, so I dig out my sunglasses, but when I put them on, they do something fuzzy to my vision, so I just stuff them back in my pack. It's late afternoon when I think I've found help. I spot a cluster of berry bushes and hurry to strip the fruit, to suck the sweet juices from the skins, but just as I'm holding them to my lips, I get a hard look at them. What I thought were blueberries have a slightly different shape, and when I break open one, the insides are blood red. I don't recognize these berries. Perhaps they're edible, but I'm guessing this is some evil trick on the part of the game makers. Even the plant instructor in the training center made a point of telling us to avoid berries unless you were 100% sure they weren't toxic. 
something I already knew. But I'm so thirsty it takes her a reminder to give me the strength to fling them away. Fatigue is beginning to settle on me. But it's not the usual tiredness that follows a long hike. I have to stop and rest frequently, although I know the only cure for what ails me requires continued searching. I try a new tactic, climbing a tree as high as I dare in my shaky state to look for any sign of water. But as far as I can see, in any direction, there's the same unrelenting stretch of forest. Determined to go on until nightfall, I walk until I'm stumbling over my own feet. Exhausted, I haul myself up into a tree and belt myself in. I've no appetite, but I suck on a rabbit bone just to give my mouth something to do. Night falls. The anthem plays. And high in the sky, I see the picture of the girl who was apparently from District 8. The one Peter went back to finish off. My fear of the career pack is minor compared to my burning thirst. Besides, they were heading away from me, and by now they too will have to rest. With the scarcity of water, they may even have had to return to the lake for refills. Maybe that's the only course for me as well. Morning brings distress. My head throbs with every beat of my heart. Simple movements send stabs of pain through my joints. I fall rather than jump from the tree. It takes several minutes for me to assemble my gear. Somewhere inside me, I know this is wrong. I should be acting with more caution, moving with more urgency, but my mind seems foggy. Forming a plan is hard. I lean back against the trunk of my tree, one finger gingerly stroking the sandpaper surface of my tongue as I assess my options. How can I get water? Return to the lake? No good. I would never make it. Hope for rain? Not a cloud in the sky. Keep looking. Yes, this is my only chance. But then another thought hits me, and the surge of anger that follows brings me to my senses. Hamish! He could send me water. Press a button and have it delivered to me on a silver parachute in minutes. I know I must have sponsors, or at least one or two who could afford a pint of water for me. Yes, it's pricey, but these people, they're made of money. And they'll be betting on me as well. Perhaps Haymitch doesn't realize how deep my need is. I say in a voice as loud as I dare. Water. I wait, hopefully, for a parachute to descend from the sky. But nothing is forthcoming. Something is wrong. Am I deluded about having sponsors? Or has Peter's behavior made them all hang back? No, I don't believe it. There's someone out there who wants to buy water, only Haymitch is refusing to let it go through. As my mentor, he gets to control the flow of gifts from the sponsors. I know he hates me. He's made it clear enough. But enough to let me die? From this? He can't do that, can he? If a mentor mistreats the tributes, he'll be held accountable by the viewers. But the people back in District 12, even Haymitch wouldn't risk that, would he? Say what you like about my fellow traitors back in the hob, but I don't think they'd welcome him back there if he let me die this way. And then where would he get his liquor? So, what? Is he trying to make me suffer for defying him? Is he directing all the sponsors toward PETA? 
is he just too drunk to even notice what's going on at the moment? Somehow I don't believe that. And I don't believe he's trying to kill me off by neglect either. He has, in fact, in his own unpleasant way, genuinely been trying to prepare me for this. Then what is going on? I bury my face in my hands. There's no danger of tears now. I couldn't produce one to save my life. What is Hamish doing? Despite my anger, hatred, and suspicions, a small voice in the back of my head whispers an answer. Maybe he's sending you a message, it says. A message. Saying what? And then I know there's only one good reason Hamish could be withholding water from me. Because he knows I've almost found it. I grit my teeth and pull myself to my feet. My backpack seems to have tripled in weight. I find a broken branch that will do for a walking stick and I start off. The sun's beating down, even more searing than the first two days. I feel like an old piece of leather, drying and cracking in the heat. Every step is an effort, but I refuse to stop. I refuse to sit down. If I sit, there's a good chance I won't be able to get up again, that I won't even remember my task. What easy prey I am. Any tribute, even tiny rue, could take me right now. Merely shove me over and kill me with my own knife. And I'd have little strength to resist. But if anyone is in my part of the woods, they ignore me. The truth is, I feel a million miles from another living soul. Not alone, though. No, they've surely got a camera tracking me now. I think back to the years of watching tributes starve, freeze, bleed, and dehydrate to death. Unless there's a really good fight going on somewhere else, I'm being featured. My thoughts turn to Prim. It's likely she won't be watching me live, but they'll show updates at the school during lunch. For her sake, I try to look as least desperate as I can. But by afternoon, I know the end is coming. My legs are shaking and my heart too quick. I keep forgetting exactly what I'm doing. I've stumbled frequently and managed to regain my feet, but when the stick slides out from underneath me, I finally tumble to the ground, unable to get up. I let my eyes close. I've misjudged Hamish. He has no intention of helping me at all. This is all right, I think. This is not so bad here. The air is less hot, signifying evening's approach. There's a slight, sweet scent that reminds me of lilies. My fingers stroke the smooth ground, sliding easily across the top. This is an okay place to die. I think. My fingertips make small, swirling patterns in the cool, slippery earth. I love mud, I think. How many times I've tracked game with the help of its soft, readable surface. 
good for bee stings too. Mud. Mud? Mud. My eyes fly open and I dig my fingers into the earth. It's mud. My nose lifts into the air and those are lilies, pond lilies. I crawl now through the mud, dragging myself toward the scent. Five yards from where I fell, I crawl through a tangle of plants into a pond. Floating on the top, yellow flowers in bloom are my beautiful lilies. It's all I can do not to plunge my face into the water and gulp down as much as I can hold, but I have just enough sense left to abstain. With trembling hands, I get out my flask and fill it with water. I add what I remember to be the right drops of iodine for purifying it. The half an hour of waiting is agony, but I do it. At least I think it's half an hour, but it's certainly as long as I can stand. Slowly, easy now, I tell myself. I take one swallow and make myself wait. Then another. Over the next couple of hours, I drink the entire half gallon. Then a second. I prepare another before I retire to a tree where I continue sipping, eating rabbit, even indulge in one of my precious crackers. By the time the anthem plays, I feel remarkably better. There are no faces tonight. No tributes died today. Tomorrow I'll stay here, resting, camouflaging my backpack with mud, catching some of those little fish I saw as I sipped, digging up the roots of the pond lilies to make a nice meal. I snuggle down in my sleeping bag, hanging on to my water bottle for dear life, which, of course, it is. A few hours later, the stampede of feet shakes me from slumber. I look around in bewilderment. It's not yet dawn, but my stinging eyes can see it. It would be hard to miss the wall of fire descending on me. And that is the end of our third chapter for the evening. Everyone, thank you so much for joining me tonight. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And if you're wondering what on earth we're doing here, this is Flying Sidecar, our Thursday afternoon show where uh, it is, of course, a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Everyone, I hope that you will go ahead and check out the link tree, uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. You can come hang out in the Discord. Uh, I'm going to have to go ahead and fix that Twitch command because it just straight up doesn't work anymore at all. Um, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. There we go. Uh, head on over there and you will find the, the link tree, which includes lots of sidecar stuff, but of course the Discord. Y'all know the Discord is the spot to be. Um, as I mentioned, I am finishing up my stream for the night, but this is the third chapter of the evening. If you come back next Thursday and the Thursday after that and the one after that, we will be continuing to read. Uh, and of course, if you are looking for back episodes of this, you can find those flying sidecar wherever you get your podcasts. Um, You'll find this and our previous series, the Percy Jackson series. Um, and if you want to find out more about some of the other series that we've read, um, Harry Potter, we've read Frankenstein, we have read uh, 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 The Great Gatsby, we've read all sorts of stuff. Uh, you can find out more about those in the playlist channel over on the Discord. 
Um, that is sort of your one-stop shop. I try to make the Discord like the best spot for everything, and the link tree is the best way to get to everything. So, uh, y'all, please do check that out. Thank you so much for listening, and let's talk about the chapters that we just read. Unfortunately, chapter 12 has not provided us with a lot of insight on what on earth PETA is up to. Um, Katniss certainly gives, sort of runs through some options, right? Um, Katniss is sort of thinking about why is it that, that PETA would join these career tributes when, I mean, back in District 12, they must be screaming and shouting and booing uh, uh, PETA for joining them, right? The District 12 tributes uh, have no business being with the career tributes. Uh, everyone hates the career tributes, right? These are the people who sort of like train and revel in this this chance to kill others, right? How how is Peta gonna go home? If, even if he wins this, how is Peta gonna go home with with that? But then again, how's Peta gonna get home without it? Can he fight his way through solo? Or does he need this? A very confusing character, Peter Malark. Uh, or, or I should say a very complicated character. That's a better way to say it. Very complicated character. Van says, viewers back in 12 are probably as confused as all of us are about Peter. Yes, and I think, you know, this is one of those issues of perspective. Um, our point of view. This story being told from Katniss's point of view, as opposed to, like, think of some other series, right? Um, uh, I've enjoyed quite a few series where they bounce between perspectives. Uh, Animorphs is a great example uh, from this similar genre, um, wherein, you know, we'll get a chapter from one person's perspective, then from another person's perspective. Am I totally remembering that wrong? Or is it book by book? If I remember correctly, they, they will bounce chapter to chapter. But anyway, there are certainly books uh, that... that <laughs> that avail themselves of of uh, that technique of moving from different perspectives per chapter. This one is all very, very much inside Katniss's own perspective. Um, and it gives us a great chance to view every single event through Katniss's eyes, through Katniss's set of ideals, right? We, we see the world through a lens of Katniss. Parker Lovegood says, how do we know PETA didn't announce to the camera something that nobody else knows? That's true. It's true. It's very possible. Very possible. We don't know, you know right? Because PETA does separate off for a moment to go kill that other tribute, um, the one who had already been wounded. What happened there? Did he actually do it? Is this, um, you know, is this who PETA really is? Or is this just someone PETA is pretending to be? Excellent, excellent questions. Um, Awkward Sushi says, I believe it was that one. It was really big, had a lot of cool shops. Um, referring to a conversation, uh, let's see, a, a Ren Fair. Uh, let's see, something about a Ren Fair in Holly, Michigan, it would seem. That sounds like fun. That sounds pretty cool. Still have never been to a Ren Fair. Y'all have seen some of my some of the garb that I would put together if uh, if I were to go to a Ren Fair, but unfortunately have not made my way to one yet. And uh, you know, it's the sort of thing where I, I sort of Ren Fair by way of tabletop RPGs, I suppose I would say. I don't know if that's the right way in, but that's sort of the direction I would be coming from. Um, and it was the sort of thing where I hadn't sort of uh, walked far enough down that path until just a couple of years ago. And I would say, you know, just a couple of years prior to the pandemic, and then of course it's been. 
you know, a couple of years of like, it's just not time to go to a Ren Fair right now. For me, at least. Just not time for me to go to a Ren Fair right now. So, eh, there we go. Awkward Sushi says, Peter doesn't really have any good fighting slash survival skills. It makes sense for him to make alliances, even if temporary. He is a strategist, isn't he? Isn't he Awkward Sushi? Yeah, he's a strategist. And, you know, I don't want to spend so, so much time talking about PETA um, that we don't talk about Katniss. This is not a criticism of you, Awkward Sushi. It's on me. Um, because, you know, when we think about this story, right, who are we being told a lot about? Well, it's we're being told a lot about PETA. But don't forget to look for the clues when we can make our own deductions, right? We can make deductions. We can take information that we are being given, even if it's not directly sort of told to us. We can sort of make inferences and make deductions uh, like a, like a Sherlock Holmes do. And uh, I would say some of the best things that we've got our hands on right now are the ways in which Katniss resolves problems. Katniss is a problem solver, right? We know we we've watched as as Peta is kind of a strategist, especially a social strategist, um, right? We we can see the ways in which he he can work a crowd. He knows how to work an interview. Um, he knows how to sort of like play it up for sponsors. He knows apparently how to make some very, you know, regardless of whether he, this is uh, a ruse he's putting on or whether this is uh, a, a a real commitment to being just vicious in this fight, we know that he has apparently got some considerable skill in alliances. This is a very valuable alliance that he's made here. We know he's a strategist. Katniss, all we can do, we don't, we don't get anyone telling us what Katniss is except the occasional note from Hamish where he responds like, you're hopeless at this whole charisma thing. But we can watch the ways in which she behaves and the things that she does. And so let's look at some of the things that she does. What is, I mean, especially this chapter right here that we've just gone through. How many pages is it that we watch Katniss mentally process why Hamish isn't giving her some water? There are other instances of this too. She's very analytical about PETA. We've seen that quite a few times. That's why we have all of this sort of discussion that we can have about PETAs because we've watched Katniss and we've read as Katniss sort of gives her take on the scenario because she's thinking a lot about it. In that same way, Haymitch is not sending her any water. She feels pretty confident she's got the sponsors to pull it off, right? Someone could be sending her water, but they're not. Why? Well, the only explanation is that she's wrong or that Haymitch the one who is in control of whether or not she gets sponsorships, Hamish is intentionally not sending this water. Now, we, of course, go through the whole process of, like, watching her come to this conclusion that it's because she must be close and that this is actually a message from from Hamish and he's sort of, like, reserving the help until later on when she really, really needs it as opposed to being right here on the edge, right here about to find the water that she needs. But we spend... Let's see. I want to see how many pages we, we track with, with Katniss as she mentally processes this challenge. Um, let's see. Morning brings distress. So about half a page. So then that's one, two. It's almost two full pages. It's almost two full pages wherein we just watch Katniss problem solve. We can make some inferences about this. She herself is also a strategist, right? Um, she has instincts, sure. Um, she has got hunting experience and prowess. But what she has especially, it would seem, 
is a mind that is willing to work on these problems while her body's sort of doing other things, doing the survival stuff. She spends a ton of time thinking about why Hamish doesn't send water. And uh, of course, you know, it's not that there's a lot else to do right now, but you know, it, it could simply be that she, you know, she could just start railing against, um, uh, uh, Hamish to any camera that will listen about how, you know, she's been betrayed by her, sp her, uh, mentor, etc. But no, she thinks her way through it. And I think a confirmation of this, of this idea of this deduction is that we're not the only ones who think that Katniss is analytical enough to receive this message because apparently so does Haymitch. Haymitch knows she's in, Haymitch knows that, you know, she's not, she's not uh, all instinct, right? Cause if she was all instinct, then she would ask for this water and sort of like expect it or give up without it or something like that. Right. Haymitch knows that if he sends a signal by doing nothing, that she will be able to mentally process this enough that she will be able to help herself and he can continue to withhold that help until later. Until it's really, really necessary. He knows this about her. And so I think that feels to me like confirmation that we may be right about this conclusion about, uh, about Katniss. Got a lot of people thinking here, right? And I think uh, as just a final note of our discussion here, it's interesting how the adversity, right? How how the um, you know the, the the insistence of the capital at keeping the keeping the districts from organizing, keeping the districts from like producing like real fighters, because really anyone you know people of fighting age are sent off to kill each other every single year. Instead of the the in in, in this effort to prevent the districts from becoming fighters. A lot of these hardships have made some people in the districts very good tacticians because they've had to be. They've grown up having to be tactical, having to be analytical, having to, to make their plans, to rely on their instincts only as much as they can, and then using their, using their wits for the rest. Van says, imagine how hard that would be for Hamish. It shows he trusts her more than she thinks, maybe. Yeah, we can, I, I think, and, and this is another one of those things where we can sort of make inferences, right? And perhaps we will have confirmation or denial of this later on, but another inference we can make about a different character is Hamish. Think about the turn that happened and when it happened. Remember the turn that happened in Hamish, where he was just a, a drunk, silly dude um, with no real, no real care to sort of like be mentally present for anything? When did that change? At, at what moment did that change? What happened that made Hamish change his his sort of tune here? Made him change his tack? What made him sober up somewhat? It's when he was attacked by Peta and Katniss, after a fashion. In that moment, both of them showed Hamish, hey, this might not be another year of you watching people from your district die after getting to know them for a week. You've spent every year getting close to some kids from your home and then watching them die. Remember, he's the only living winner from District 12. 
There was another one back in the early days, but it sounds like that that person has died. In 74 Hunger Games, twice it was won by someone from District 12. Hamish Abernathy, however old he is, in his many years, I think we could probably assume like at least 20 or 30 years, in his many years of training tributes, he has yet to have one winner. And then he gets attacked by a couple of these punk kids from District 12. And I think the inference we can make based on that is that he's never been able to believe in tributes from 12 before. Maybe in the maybe in the early years, maybe he was he was a dedicated mentor. Maybe maybe a little less as time went on and he saw those first that first decade, that first 10 years, those first 20 kids that he mentored, all of them going off to die in the arena. Maybe the next 10 years, the next 20 tributes, 20 20 years at this, 40 tributes. All of them dying, sounds like maybe quickly even. This year, the tributes attack him on the train, and he thinks to himself, maybe this is the year that I can wake up. Maybe this is the year that I can bear to open my eyes at the games because they might have a chance. MMP says, so... 146 deaths of past District 12 tributes? I believe so, MMP. 146 in less than 100 years. So let's see, if we're, if we're to track that time for these days, uh, think about 1950. If, think about if somebody from your, and, and this sort of sense of scale is gonna be a little wonky because of course we, we know that District 12 is about 8,000 people. If I remember that correctly, I believe District 12 is about 8,000 people. So either you can imagine is like 146 people from your state in, since the 1950s. You know, since, since uh, well, no, since, yeah, since the 1950s. Or you can imagine this as like someone from your like relatively small hometown. District 12 is much smaller than my hometown. 146. It's a lot of people. And... It, there are people who are sort of at the prime age, slightly younger, but certainly around about the prime age, like Gale, for instance. Prime age for uh, rebellious activity. And this is what the games are designed to do. They're designed to quell rebellion. They're, des they're designed to uh, set up a spirit of animosity, of competition. Uh, think about, you know, like how much Districts 1, 2, and 4 have bought into this concept and how much it has worked to the capital's favor. Every year they train tributes to be great at killing people from other districts, and every year all the other districts hate them. So you've got at least, you've got at least three of your 12 existing districts hated by the rest, right? Even if you just divide it by that, you've already eliminated a quarter of the enemies that you could potentially have. If you are the, if you are the capital and you can get districts uh, 2 and 5 through 12 to hate districts 1, 2, and 4, you've cut, you cut any possible opposing forces in, uh, by one quarter, by 25%. That's huge. 
not only that, but if you can, uh, you know, really, really doll up those, uh, really, really, really uh, sort of uh, sugar daddy for those, um, those three districts, they might even be willing to be on your side when a conflict comes around. It's about division. It's all about division. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, before about how um, uh, my study of cults for um, my my monster series. I studied cults, you know, uh, casually, but with a, a casual intensity. Uh, and the biggest, biggest thing that I took from that is uh, this concept of the anointed ones. How, how much easier it is for the capital to stay in power when they have anointed ones, when they have selected a small group from the larger group and anointed them as sort of like quasi-leaders or the favorites or the righteous ones or whoever the hell else. I'm, I'm going to feel okay using that, that language because the, the this series is more PG-13 uh, than PG, and so I'm going to probably stick to PG-13 language, um, which y'all can feel free to do so in chat as well. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to stop putting the family-friendly tag on this one. I think I accidentally did this week. But, but uh, no, it's, it is about division and this concept of the anointed ones uh comes up a lot in so many power structures it is reliant upon the 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 tiny number of people anointing a small number of people and though that small number of people then is just powerful enough they feel like they that like the system benefits them because it does and then they are they are able to sort of quell uh, the the remaining population. If if this one percent of people in the capital, which I, I think is probably more likely a greater number than that, but we'll we'll call it this one percent of people can anoint twenty five percent of people. They can keep one hundred percent of people relatively in line. It happens again and again and again in cults and various power structures all over the place. So. Something to keep an eye on, gang. Something to keep an eye on if you are the if you are the seventy five percent, but also if you find yourself feeling like the twenty five percent. Which is which is a, a white cis dude in uh, <laughs> in uh, the United States. I gotta be careful about everybody i hope you have enjoyed this week uh a hell of a discussion as i've said before um this whole book is going to offer quite a bit more to us it does not shy away from some of these very challenging topics and very important topics and so uh, i appreciate you all joining me for this and i hope you have a fantastic week <laughs>